0: This is Tom Doran reading a passage from his book Toward the Gleam. Tom is a retired environmental engineer, our lady of good counsel parishioner, father and grandfather. But to thousands of avid fans, he is known as TM Doran, spinner of enigmatic mysteries and fantastical worlds. And that's because for the last decade or more, he's taken on the title of author.
1: The old man undid a latch on each end of the pine box. Abbott concluded that it must contain something of sentimental attachment. But who was he to crush his visitor's hopes? Wasn't this evening, after all, about compassion for the man sitting across from him? The lid came up toward the old man's chest, revealing a silver box, which, allowing for a piece of felt around its perimeter, fits snugly in the larger wooden container. This smaller box was another matter altogether. Even in the dim lamplight, it gleamed like nothing Abbott had ever seen before. Its visible surface had been etched with unfamiliar runes in a beautiful abstract pattern. John Hill lifted it gently, even reverently, from its wooden cradle. And Abbott could not help being reminded again of one of the magi preparing to present his gift to the infant.
0: Welcome to Detroit Stories a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Church supplies to take you from ashes to Easter. Shop G.A. Fuchs Company for everything you need as you journey through Lent to Easter. Visit FuchsChurchSupply.com. Tom's most popular novel, Toward the Gleam, takes place between the two world wars. On a hike in the English countryside, Professor John Hill takes refuge from a violent storm in a cave. While there, he nearly loses his life, but he also makes an astonishing discovery, an ancient manuscript housed in a cunningly crafted metal box. While Hill's profession has been the study of language and literary texts, this particular manuscript and the time period in which it was made eludes him. He knows enough, however, to know that this book and its case are the belongings of a long-lost but advanced civilization. Translating the ancient text and protecting the artifact from anyone who would abuse the knowledge within becomes a lifelong quest for Hill. On this quest, this protagonist faces a giant pirate enslaver, a human chameleon, a mysterious hermit, and many other deadly and beautiful creatures. But most notably, this character will explore the consequences of the predominant ideas of the 20th century. This novel, which is part of a trilogy, is one of six books by Plymouth native Tom Doran. It's his baby. And it's his method of what he calls pre-evangelization.
1: Well, I've loved to read and write for as long as I can remember. And even though I went into a technical profession, I have always uh, continued to read and write. Uh, When I was young, I I read a lot of science fiction, Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. Uh, I've continued to read mysteries uh, through my whole life, Uh, but then... As I got older, I began to read uh, Charles Dickens and Dostoevsky and Jane Austen. Uh, I went, went sort of through the canon and, uh, and found that I enjoyed those books quite a bit. Graham Greene has impressed my writing the most. He's kind of gritty. He's not for everyone, but uh, craft of writing, I've learned a lot from him and his stories
0: but for Tom, one writer's work has stood out among the rest.
1: The Lord of the Rings is my favorite fictional work ever. I've read it many, many times. And I, asked, and, and I love history, I prehistoric history. I love science. I love prehistoric, the prehistoric world.
0: So in the last 10 to 15 years, when Tom pivoted from writing for hobby to writing to publish, he returned to this book to source creativity.
1: And I asked myself, is there any imaginative way in which this could be true? In other words, that some of the things that occurred could actually be placed in a historical context from the standpoint of Climatology from the standpoint of animal life then, from the standpoint of, of uh, natural disasters, from the standpoint of mythology, such as Atlantis, and all those things. Could I, could I pull, put those together in a credible enough way that I could draw readers in?
0: The answer to that question was Toward the Gleam, the first of his trilogy where a professor is driven by obsession to cover and protect a secret language he uncovered from an ancient community.
1: Big picture, Toward the Glean, I would say, is a mysterious, menacing truth of, uh, story about truth and beauty and the consequences of rejecting truth and beauty. But generally speaking, Toward the Glean, uh, what it said to me was to, to reaching for something bright and beautiful uh, out there. Um, And you can look at that a lot of different ways. There's an object in the book, physical object in the book that could fit that description, but also there are spiritual human and spiritual things that you could reach for toward the gleam.
0: This is Tom's way of alluding to the ethereal, to God, to the spiritual journey we all make in this life.
1: Toward the Gleam features a main character, John Hill is an alias he sometimes uses, and he and other characters in the book may remind readers of iconic 20th century figures.
0: Readers might recognize the thinly veiled similarity to J.R.R. R. Tolkien, both an inspiration to Duran, as well as a model for his main character. He's a professor,
1: uh, English professor, taught at several universities in England including Oxford. Uh, He's a a scholar and a writer of uh, popular fiction. And there are other characters in the book that uh, are as well known.
0: C.S. Lewis, Edith Stein, one of the Inklings, Owen Barfield?
1: John Hill and his family and friends, they face adversaries in the story who embrace some of the deadly ideologies that were popular in the 20th century. Those things are explored in the book in conversations and also in events that occur in the book.
0: In the role of storyteller of other people's fictionalized lives, Tom is free to weave dilemmas that the reader may encounter to posture questions that may ultimately leave the reader thinking about the same big life questions Tolkien had asked under the guise of a story.
1: Those are ideologies that I myself in my life have explored in great detail uh, through my reading, through my conversation. Not necessarily the kinds of life and death uh, situations that these characters went through, uh, the drama that they went through, but still I've spent a lot of time with those and looking at the consequences of those ideologies, and this book uh, takes a deep dive into those because you have some, some people who have thought very deeply about those, a fellow by the name of Jack, uh, another fellow by the name of Owen, uh, John Hill, and these people are all historical uh, surrogates. Uh, that spend quite a bit of time not only discussing these ideologies, but meeting people and adversaries who uh, embrace them.
0: While Tom's characters in the 20th century may be dealing with the horrors of war and the fallout from fascist and communist ideologies, readers will find the nuclear trials he faces very relatable.
1: I think especially some of the moral struggles And when I say moral struggles, I'm speaking very broadly, uh, just uh, the relationship between John Hill and his wife and uh, what I would call the moral struggle he had between this uh, spectacular artifact that he discovers, the time he spends with it, the attention he gives to it in relation to his marriage and his family, there is a parallel, I think, in relation to my work, uh, I spend a lot of time, and I have spent a lot of time, on my writing, on my novels, etc. To the extent uh, that sometimes it becomes a question, uh, am I, are my priorities always in the right place?
0: Like John Hill, his fictional character, like Tolkien, Tom, too, was juggling his work and his writing he would come home from work and write in the evenings something that could put stress on his family. Here's Tom, reading another passage from Toward the Gleam.
1: 2.26 p.m., John Hill read the letter a second time, meet me in your office at 9 p.m., or that meddling philosopher will be dead by dawn. The time for withholding information from E.M., or deceiving her, had come to an end. He called her into the room and handed her the letter. Do you know what he wants, she said, dropping the letter on the floor. Of course I do. You put him off before. Not this time. What do you mean? He won't be put off again, I'm afraid. What are you going to do? There's nothing to be done. I have to go. I'm sorry, John, but that isn't encouraging. No. That's all? No. That's all. He's pursuing me, and now he's cornered. me. If I don't go, Owen is killed. If I go, there's hope. There's no hope for me if you go. He put his hands on her shoulder. She gazed at his face as if she were preparing to sketch him. Then she turned and left the room. He concluded that she was too troubled for further conversation. But she soon returned and held out her hand. Where had she gotten that shiny new pistol?
0: Tom spends up to a decade on his books with years for research before even putting pen to paper. And those years spent asking the deep philosophical questions he has his characters ask, the years of hypothesizing how they would respond to certain life experiences, has an effect on him.
1: Writing a story is, is a formative experience. So if you think about it, I'm learning from the story I'm writing via the research, via how the characters change, how the story changes. I'm learning, I'm being formed, I'm exploring myself. So a lot of times in, in my stories, those are things that maybe I was grappling with. And I was using the story as a vehicle, not just to tell us a rousing story, which I'm always trying to do, or a mysterious story, but maybe trying to grapple with some things myself, You know, some of these issues choices and consequences and transformation in some sense.
0: And it's the same process of spiritual exploration, of asking life's big questions that he hopes to give his readers. It's what he calls pre-evangelization.
1: Well, my stories, <laughs> my stories are, are sort of like the ones you net need to get to know a little better in order to see the faith there. They're not explicitly Catholic. They're not explicitly Christian, but I'm really trying to appeal to people quite often who are not necessarily converted, right? But Can still enjoy the story, can still be provoked by maybe seeing some truth and beauty and choices and things of that nature.
0: Like the Tolkens, O'Connors, and Greens of the past, he seeks to transform readers' minds and hearts through stories that probe and guide readers towards the beauty and truth of God.
1: As a form of evangelization or pre evangelization, <laughs> the thought came to me recently that in, in some ways, writers are a little bit like the bats of the uh, evangelization world, right? That's been my experience. It's kind of like the bats of the evangelization world. On the one hand, uh, they keep to themselves most of the time. So they're not necessarily out and about every day. Uh, They do good work in your backyard. They eat a lot of bugs every every night. But people are a little bit nervous around them or cautious about them. Hey, that's that's not I, I read that book and it's an interesting mystery but I didn't see anything Catholic about it I've experienced a lot of that in my life and um, that isn't to say there aren't a lot of people that like to read and have provided some great responses but uh, but but that's that's an area because it's it's not uh, it can go in some, some dark directions occasionally. It can go in some gritty directions. Some people are a little suspicious of it. So there is truth in my books, and there is beauty, which in a lot of uh, modern novels, there really is no such thing as truth or beauty, per se. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In a lot of modern books, that... that I've read more than a few myself, and that's they may be interesting, they may be rousing, they may be, etc. But in a in a in a higher sense, there's no truth or beauty. It's what you make of it. Um, that's a difference with my books, is that uh, there may not be a line in, in it that said, this is truth, this is beauty, but there's a thread. There's a little thread woven into the stories that truth is serious and beauty is serious.
0: When Tolkien wrote, he was one of a handful of inklings, practicing Christians honing their craft. Flannery O'Connor was unapologetically Catholic and still welcomed with open arms at Yaddo and at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Hollywood was full of Fords, Capras, Pecks, and Crosbys who all explicitly bore their Catholic faith in their work and Archbishop Fulton Sheen was on primetime television. Today's Catholic writers and artists forge a different landscape. Tom believes the world needs Catholic artists now more than ever.
1: I I think that it's desperately needed, and it's desperately needed because of uh, of the materialism and relativism. I've stayed away from some of the philosophical stuff, but I've explored some of these things pretty pretty densely in both literature and in uh, uh and outside of literature and in and those two things materialism, which is what we see and hear and feel and touch and smell is all that's real uh and relativism, which is there is no truth or beauty or absolute good it it all depends on what uh what society says, what the laws say, uh, what I think, etc. Those are pervasive. Those are deeply pervasive ideas in our culture and society, deeply rooted. And uh, so, I think, t- from that standpoint, now more than ever, <laughs> uh, people at least need to be exposed to the to the idea that could truth be. Something higher and something independent of what I think is true or false. Is beauty higher than just something that I write or draw or read or or view on TV? Um, Those sorts of things. Is Is there really a goodness or does it just have to do with how society happens to feel at this moment versus how it felt a generation ago? That's a very uh, dangerous—and in IOTA, I think that's one of the themes that was explored, is that we were in an era where uh, truth is what the government said it was. Uh, Beauty was what the government said it was. Goodness was what the government said it was. Both in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union, both of of which played into this novel— and elsewhere in the world. So uh, hopefully, hopefully art can leaven. <laughs> art, I think art is intended to leaven society. I think it's a, a, a gift from God. Some of it is more explicitly Catholic or Christian, and some of it is more
0: uh, implicitly. Over half a century ago, a young Tolkien penned his magnum opus while explicit evil besieged his country and world. As his friends continued to fall in battles around him, he nursed his grief by creating his masterpiece. A world in which evil is patent, good, while small and humble and unlikely, ultimately wins. And people are given the harrowing choice and potential to do both. Since the writing of that book, readers of all spiritual walks have seen themselves as Frodo and Gollum and many of the characters in Tolkien's books and will likely do so for many years to come. To Doran, this is an exquisite form of evangelization. He hopes his readers, regardless of faith, will read his books and see that every moment of our lives presents a choice to do good and a choice to do evil. Like the writer of a book, God leaves us to fashion our own story for our world, create our own protagonists and antagonists, and determine our own ultimate postscript.
1: Our job, our friendships, when we make choices of our priorities, right, there are consequences, always consequences. In this book, I think the consequences are quite stark. In our my life and my shire dwelling life, and most other people's shire dwelling life, those consequences uh, may not be as obvious. I think one of the great fallacies today is that we can make choices, and but we don't. We can choose choices, but we can also choose the consequences, and that's that's has a deep falseness to it. Uh, consequences flow from choices. That doesn't mean we can't mitigate them and pray about them and change our lives, etc. But quite often when we make a choice, we have to live with that. And some of those choices that John Hill and others make in this book, they cascade from decade to decade. And ours do too. I have.
0: Detroit Stories is a production of the Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Church supplies to take you from ashes to Easter. Shop G.A. Fuchs Company for everything you need as you journey through Lent to Easter. Visit FuchsChurchSupply.com.